Last week, we started a series on heaven. And we're continuing this week. I'll do a brief review. Because there's a lot of things people think about heaven and believe about heaven or talk about heaven that actually have no scriptural foundation. And then if you actually talk to believers, say, well, what do you know about heaven? What they can describe to you about heaven takes less than 90 seconds. When we say, oh, we're all excited about going to heaven, but if we're excited about going to heaven, shouldn't we know something about it? Shouldn't we know something about what the Word of God says about it, not pop culture? Because there's some parts of pop culture that make you believe that heaven is a few clouds and some naked babies with a heart. And if that's all heaven is, like, well, why would I want to go there? Come on, if I want to go some clouds, I can go skydiving with Minister Dathan. If that's what I wanted, I could do that. Heaven is more than that. Say, heaven is more than that. So let's look what Jesus said in John 14, verse 1. John 14, verse 1. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. That word troubled means agitated, disturbed. You might say, there's a lot of things going on in this world right now. Yeah, but you have control of your heart. It is your decision whether you let things agitate or disturb your heart. You have to take control of your own heart. Say, I have to take control of my own heart. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And for some of you who've heard about mansions in heaven, you think, oh yeah, there's a mansion for me in heaven. Imagine this settling in with the disciples who have never heard this before. They didn't know there were mansions and dwelling places for them in heaven. Jesus said, if it wasn't true, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He went to prepare a place for us. So say, there is a place for me in heaven. If you're watching line, put it in the chat, and let's say it again together. Say, there is a place for me in heaven. Jesus went to prepare a place for you. Imagine how huge heaven must be if there's a place there for every single believer. Not just a place, but a mansion. Do you know how much land a mansion sits on? So heaven is not just a few clouds. It is a huge place, and there is a place being prepared for you. Which lets me know heaven is a place of continual construction and expansion. Because think about how many people are just saved right now on this planet. Let's say the estimate is right. You have at least 2 billion, a lot more probably, saved people on this planet. That's at least 2 billion mansions. But imagine all the people who follow God for thousands upon thousands of years. Heaven is a huge place. And Jesus is preparing a mansion for you. Second Corinthians 5, verse 8, doing a little bit more review. Paul said, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So say with me, put it in the chat, say, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You aren't going to stay here and haunt somebody. So they got on my nerves. I got some eternal pettiness. I'm going to haunt them for a hundred years. No. That's not how it works. You ain't going to purgatory either. You're not haunting people. 
It's like, oh, no, big mama's haunting my house. That ain't big mama. That's something else you need to cast out. <laughs> to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we think about that scripture, we think, okay, present, we think about going back to school with a call and roll. Present, here. When we think the word present just means to be there, right? That word has a deeper meaning than just to be there. That word present means to be among one's own people. It means to dwell in one's own country. It means to stay at home. That word present means to be among one's own people. It means to dwell in one's own country. It means to stay at home. So when you're saying to be absent from the body, you're saying, I'm with my own people with God. I'm in my own country, my own place with God. I'm at home with God. So we would say easily that heaven is God's home, right? But heaven is also your home. We'd all say heaven belongs to God, right? Heaven belongs to you. Heaven belongs to you as much as it belongs to God. Why? God shared it with you. You can't call it your home if it doesn't belong to you. It's your home. It belongs to you. There's a mansion for you there. Jesus prepared a place for you there. This is not a figment of the imagination. It is a real place with real people who have real eternal lives. Now, we looked at last week how there, we saw three different words in the scriptures that describe different parts of heaven. Heaven is huge. There's multiple places in heaven. We looked at the word paradise, the word city, and the word country. The word paradise, the word city, and the word country. The word paradise is a park, a garden. It is a Persian word denoting a grand enclosure or preserve. It is the same Greek word used for the Garden of Eden in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so when we look at a garden, we have to think it's not the garden we think of. Like some of us, you know, built, you know, or dug your own gardens last year. It's like we can grow stuff from the ground. And you might have built a big one, but that's not what that word means. This is a huge place. When John used this word in the book of Revelation, talking to the church at Ephesus, Word paradise, that word was a huge garden that was surrounded by walls that surrounded one of the temples in the city. This is the same word used in the Greek in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was not a small place. When you look at the geographical descriptions of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, it covered parts of Africa, it covered parts of the Middle East, and it stretched into Asia. That is God's definition of a garden. That ain't no small place. And it's surrounded by walls. If you look at the walls that surround the garden, you see that in the book of Revelation. This is a huge place, and that's not the whole part of heaven. That's just the garden. That's just paradise. Then we see there's the country. And then we see the heavenly city. Heaven is a huge place that's being prepared for you. So we said, well, what is heaven like? So we looked at Psalm 1611. That says, you will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. We said the word fullness means abundance. And that word joy means gladness or mirth. 
which is amusement, especially as expressed in laughter. It is glee. It is the state of being lighthearted and cheerful. It is the same word that was used to describe a festival. So the atmosphere of heaven is joy, gladness, amusement, especially expressed in laughter. It is glee. It is a state of being lighthearted and cheerful. It is used to describe a festival. Heaven has the constant turn up atmosphere. It is a party atmosphere. It is an atmosphere of celebration. We don't just know that from this verse alone. When we look at Matthew chapter 25, when we know that scripture, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. We want to hear those words, right? That word joy is also translated in the New Living Translation says, let's celebrate together. When we go to Luke chapter 15 and we look at the parables of the woman who lost the coin, the man who lost the sheep, and the prodigal son, which we know so well, when he gets to the end of the coin, she calls her friends and says, let us rejoice together because I found my lost coin. You get to the end of the one with the sheep, let's rejoice together because I found my sheep. It's rejoicing. But when you get to the end of the story of the prodigal son, it gives you a better picture of this rejoicing. The prodigal son comes home. The father kills the fatted calf. They're throwing a party on the inside, but it wasn't a quiet party. The older son, who has his own issues, is still outside, and he could hear the music and the dancing and the celebration. It was so loud, he could hear it outside. Heaven is a loud place. Heaven isn't quiet. One of the biggest noisemakers is God himself, but we'll look at that later in the series. Heaven is so loud and so filled with joyous noise that the book of Revelation has to make a mention that it was quiet in heaven for 30 minutes. If it's quiet all the time or has season of quietness, you don't have to mention, oh, heaven was quiet for 30 minutes. This lets you know heaven's a loud place. Heaven is filled with joy. Come on. You know some people who are just very vocacious. They, they just love to talk. Whether they're with people or not, if they don't have someone to talk to, they will talk to themselves, the best company they can keep. They just talk, right? And it's, not it's not notable that they talk, it's notable when they're quiet. It's like, wow, they didn't say anything. You, you okay? Everything okay? You haven't said something like in five minutes, is everything okay? Right? Same way with heaven, that you have to know it was quiet for 30 minutes. Heaven is full of celebration. It's full of joy. It's full of music. It's full of dancing. It's a celebration. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look more about heaven. And so we talked about this before. There are people who have gone to heaven. They may have gone home early. But I'm telling you, if they could talk to you, they would say, yeah, I ain't coming back. I love you, but nah. It's fullness of joy. It's abundance of joy. Being lighthearted, full of glee and laughter. Because so many times we think picture of God on the throne and Jesus with these very stern faces. Because that's how we picture holiness, stern. One of my favorite portrayals of Jesus, a few that I really like, there's one of Jesus just laughing. Imagine getting to heaven and laughing with Jesus. This, this reminds us 
of like kids who laugh for no reason. He's like, what's so funny? They laugh even more. They're just playing and dancing and running. It's like, oh, to be a child. And God's like, oh, that you'd be my child. And experience this joy. Because we think, oh, we're just going to be serious in heaven. No, you're going to experience the same joy that children experience. Some of you, when you see Jesus, you'd be laughing and dancing. You'd be acting like you were five again. There's things God wants you to experience. That you're not supposed to outgrow the, outgrow the joy of a child. Because you're still God's child. You may have more responsibilities, but you're not supposed to lose your joy. You're supposed to have the same joy that's in heaven right now. Because that joy was put in your heart. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. And that joy is your strength. The first time you experience heaven should not be when you get there. The first time a believer experiences heaven should not be when they get there. You should be experiencing heaven on earth right now. And you should know it so well, experience it so much that you can pass out samples. See, before this time we were in, you know, there were certain stores and grocery stores that would pass out samples, especially if you went there at the right time of the day. And so it's like, yep, I know that right time I had it memorized because it was good samples. You may walk in that store not planning to spend any money, but if the sample was good enough, you would buy the product. See, the believer should be so well-versed and experienced in heaven that we can pass out samples that the sinner wants. So experienced in heaven, when we walk up to people who don't even believe like us, they want what we got. So experienced in heaven that people who don't want to give us a time of day run into our lives and they want what we got. They said, however you got that, I want it. Tell me how you got that joy. Tell me how you got that peace. Tell me how you got it. His name is Jesus. This is just a sample of what's waiting for you forever. The believer should be so experienced in heaven we pass out samples. That we should actually believe what Jesus said we could pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why would he tell us to pray that way if we can't experience heaven on earth? That means your faith and your prayers are so powerful you can bring two realms together. You should be experiencing heaven on earth even in Deuteronomy under the law, under the old covenant. That says they could have days of heaven on the earth. If under an old covenant, an inferior covenant, they could have heaven on earth, why can't you? You're under a new covenant with better promises, washed in the blood. You got the Holy Ghost on the inside. Why can't you have days of heaven on earth? There's enough hell on earth. Maybe we should be the ones that manifest heaven on earth. Hebrews chapter 12. Now we see this another comparison by the author here, comparing the book of Exodus. So for you not coming to a mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest or a great storm. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear, end quote. So it's describing when the glory of God came upon the mount in the desert. 
They went to bed, normal looking mountain. They woke up, it did not look normal no more. So imagine, you know, those of you, like, anybody has gone hike Kennesaw Mountain before, ran up it? Some of you is like, no, I've driven up it. I ain't have no business running up it. But you've been to Kennesaw Mountain. So, you know, you know how it looks. But imagine if you woke up one morning and it was surrounded by a cloud. And from that cloud was thunder and lightning and fire and a sound of a trumpet that kept getting louder and louder and louder and louder. And on top of all that, there was somebody talking out of that cloud. And that voice was so intense that everybody who heard it said, enough, no, 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 talk to Moses, then talk to us. We can't take that. Imagine that side. You'd be acting just like Israel. It's like, okay, let's back away, back into the tent. Let's go. And Moses, who knew God better than anybody else on earth at that time, knew it was coming. God told him what he was about to do. And when it happened, Moses was quaking in his book. He was just shaking, going, oh, my God. When he saw it, that amazing, glorious sight. But that's nothing compared to what's available to us. It says in Hebrews 12, but you are coming to Mount Zion. There's another Zion. Unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written or enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. There's so much to unpack from here. We're going to focus on just one phrase today. General assembly. Say general assembly. So when we think of an assembly, we may go back to grade school days when all the classes came together and you had assembly. Maybe because a sports team was about to do something or an important announcement. That's what we think about when an assembly comes together. But that's not what that word means. That word, that phrase general assembly means a celebratory or festival gathering of the whole people to celebrate public games or other solemnities. It is universally a public celebration and festival assembly. This word general assembly is a celebratory or festival gathering of the whole people to celebrate public games. It was a public celebration, a festival assembly. Once again, we see heaven, we see a festival. We see a celebration. You know, it's important if God said it once, twice, three times, but now we're like at five or six. There is something God wants you to know about heaven, and it's a celebration. And when we think about this, a celebration, people coming out for public games, well, in the U.S., we might think of the Super Bowl and all the festivities that go with the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals or different huge sporting events where people come out by the tens of thousands to be a part of. But even bigger, we may think of, in normal times, the Olympics when people from all around the world gather for the games that will take place there. The celebration, the festival, all the things that go with it, the music, the food, all the stuff, because someone's like, it's not a good party unless there's some good food. Some of you are like, just, yes. Just so some of you know, you will eat in heaven. There is food in heaven. So it's not like, oh, I only get food on this earth. There is some good food in heaven. Manna was called angel's food. 
Elijah, when he was walking through the desert, an angel sent him, told him, take a nap and eat. Some of you, that's like, that's the word of the Lord, take a nap and eat. That sounds like Jesus to me. There is food in heaven. And so this is a celebration. People gathered for the public games. Do you know why there's such an expectation about the Olympics? Because we expect to see some champions. You know, there's certain matches I'm looking forward to watching because the people we sent are awesome. There's certain events because we got some champions representing us. And so many different fields that we're looking, we're expecting to see something amazing. Even if we're not there, we're at home. Come on, some of you will be cheering just like you were right next to them. Because you're expecting to see something wonderful from your champion. See, heaven is the home of champions. Imagine the celebration when all the champions from all time get together. That's what heaven is. It's a celebration of champions. It's a celebration of conquerors. It's a celebration of overcomers. It's a festival filled with music and joy and dancing and party. So let me drive on that part more. Look what Jesus said to the churches of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The seven churches of the book of Revelation are seven literal churches that existed over 2,000 years ago in ancient Turkey. That's where they're positioned. This is where they're based. These are literal churches. But you can find a combination or part of any church in the seven churches and what they struggle with, what they dealt with. And so notice what he said in Revelation, starting with chapter 2, verse 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Verse 11, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcomes should not be heard of the second death. Verse 17, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new stone with a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. Verse 26, he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Chapter 3, verse 5, he that overcomes, the same, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and will not blot out his name of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Verse 12, him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Verse 21, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. Now in those, four, those seven verses to the seven churches, he kept saying, to him that overcomes. And one of the things you see here, these are rewards. These are heavenly rewards. There are rewards on earth, but there's also rewards in heaven. And these seven verses are heavenly rewards. Now, a lot of these rewards, we have no idea what they are. We can give our best guess, but it's all conjecture because the Scripture doesn't tell you what some of these rewards are. Some are very clear. One is you will not be hurt by the second death. That means you don't have to go to hell, and you won't got to burn in the lake of fire. Thank God. Anybody say thank God to that? Some of you can't even take Georgia in the summer. You can't take hell either. So some is very clear, and other things here, it's not as clear. We don't know, but there are rewards waiting for us to those that overcome. Jesus called every single church to overcome. 
It is the same call for every believer and every church and every generation. It is the call, the expectation, and the command of the Lord Jesus Christ for you to overcome. Heaven is the place of the overcomer, not the quitter. See, it's something very interesting when you get to the end of the book of Revelation when it talks about the lake of fire. The first thing it says, it's for the cowardly. Ooh. It says, hell is for the cowardly. Heaven's for the overcomer. Heaven is the home and the place for the overcomer. Overcome means to conquer. It means to vanquish. It means to subdue. It means to get the victory. I like what Rick Renner said about this, a Greek scholar. He said, this word denotes a victor, a champion, or one who possesses some type of superiority. It also refers to a military victory of one foe over the other. The word can be translated to control, to conquer, to overwhelm, to surpass, or to be victorious. This word can be used to describe an athletic victory or a military victory. The tense for this word speaks of a continuous and ongoing victory. A continuous and ongoing victory. The victory that Jesus called the believer to have was not a short-term race. Jesus, I had victory on Sunday. Look, Jesus, I had victory about five years ago. Look, I overcame something 10 years ago. No, the victory and the overcoming lifestyle Jesus called you to live is a lifestyle, not a moment. It is the consistent. It is the continual. It is the day in. It is the day out, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, victory. Which means it's not a short race. It's not a sprint. You have to be in it for the long call. Not for a moment. Think about some of our champions who are competing in the Olympics. They haven't been practicing for a week. They haven't been just like, okay, you know, I got a month to get really serious, the Olympics are coming. They've been doing this for years. Some of them, the majority of their life they're committed. The training an Olympian has to go through is not just the physical training, it's a mindset they have to be in to undergo that physical training. And just like this word overcome can describe an athletic victory, you have to be in the same mindset if you're going to go the long haul to win and experience victory. Just like it says, a military victory, the same commitment a soldier would have to have in battle, a warrior would have to have in battle, is what the believer has to have if they want to experience victory in every single area of their life. Not just victory in what you call spiritual things, but every area. That's what God is calling you to. But it's day in, day out. Oh, that sounds like work. Guess what it is? Oh, if God wants it to happen, it'll happen. Where do you see that in the scripture? Case of Ross that ain't a scripture. The scripture says he'll bless the work of your hands, meaning you got to work. Paul talked about, I outwork them all with the grace that's on my life. If you're going to do whatever God has called you to do, fulfill your assignment, your purpose, and your destiny, you have to work. 
You have to apply yourself. You have to press toward the mark of the high calling of the anointed one, Jesus, and his anointing. And as you step out, his grace will be there. As you step out, his anointing will be there. As you step out, his blessing will be there. But you still have to go to work. Not to stay on the couch, well, I'm waiting on God. Stop lying on my Jesus. Some people say they're waiting on God and just, that's how they describe their laziness. Now, there's some truly people who are waiting on God to open the door. But in the meantime, that doesn't mean you do nothing. In the meantime, you prepare. In the meantime, you do the other things God has assigned you to do. It doesn't mean you sit down and do nothing. Waiting is expectation. And if I really expected something, I would prepare for it. Oh, I expect to have my own business one day. We'll have you prepare for it. Do you even know the document you need to file to have a business? Oh, no, I don't. So you really don't expect to have a business one day. Have you even studied the area you plan to go in? Well, no, the grace is going to do. Look, I believe in grace on professions, but I would like to see my doctor's certificate, his diploma, my dentist's diploma. I want to see that. I believe there's grace for it, but I, I want to see that you applied yourself somewhere before you apply yourself to me. And if we would expect that in those professions, why not expect it in whatever God has called you to do? You can't expect someone else to apply themselves and you just be lazy. See, I'm going to meddle a little bit. See, I'm not even the family series. You know, some of you are dating, you're expecting Mr. or Miss Wonderful, but you ain't willing to become Mr. and Miss Wonderful. Why would you expect someone all together, but you lazy and can't even put yourself together? Oh, it was a pandemic. No, you acted the same way before the pandemic. Why would Jesus do that to them? Doesn't he love them too? We have some work to do. It's not just all on God. God has his part, and we have our part. Say, God has his part, and we have our part. Heaven, that's right. That's what we're talking about, heaven. Go to 1 John chapter 5. We're called to a lifestyle of fighting the good fight of faith and consistently overcoming every challenge, circumstance, and enemy in every area of our lives. Heaven is the home of the overcomer. Heaven contains the rewards for the overcomers. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, familiar scripture to some of us, says, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So notice, you are born again to win. You are born again to overcome. Which means in this life, you will have challenges. You say, oh, I'm going to get saved. I won't have any more challenges. That's the doctrine of a devil. You will have challenges. There's some people like, oh, I'm saved. Nothing bad can ever happen in my life. I wish that was true. That, oh, that would be wonderful. But it ain't true. There are challenges in this life. There's situations like we just don't even like. But if you're born again, if you're saved as Jesus, your Lord, you're promised victory. That means there's nothing that can show up in your life that you can't beat. 
There's nothing that can show up in your life that you can't conquer. Because if that showed up in your life, God would be unjust. You were born again to win. You were made an overcomer. So if it shows up, you can beat it. Oh, Pastor, I got 10 giants. Well, I guess you can take them all. If it shows up, you can win. Say, if it shows up, I can beat it. Go ahead and put it in the chat. We're going to say it again. Say, if it shows up, I can beat it. You're an overcomer. Not saying, oh, I'll be an overcomer one day. No. As soon as you were born again, as soon as you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as soon as that happened, your spirit changed to overcomer status. You're not going to be an overcomer when you get to heaven. You're an overcomer right now. Say, I am an overcomer right now. That's your identity. That's who you are. Well, how do you identify as an overcomer? You're not a loser. You're not a bad thing going somewhere to happen. You're not a disaster going somewhere to happen. You are an overcomer. If Jesus is your Lord, you are an overcomer. If Jesus is your Lord, you are a conqueror. If Jesus is your Lord, you are a champion. That is who you are. Don't let anybody ever tell you differently. Don't let anybody tell you what you can't do because of your age, your education, your background, your color, your gender, who you know, who you don't know, how you look, how you don't look. That is not what God said. He says you are an overcomer. You are a conqueror. You are a champion. So act like it. Stop walking around with your head down. I don't know what I'm going to do. Pick your head up. Remember who you are. Remember what Jesus did. Remember who Jesus made you. You are an overcomer, and heaven belongs to you. Don't forget who you are. The worst thing you can do after you're born again is consider yourself just human ever again. You're not the same anymore. You're more than a conqueror. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're no longer a mere mortal. I'm writing a book about that. You're no longer a mere mortal. Everything changed. And how do we win, it says, our faith? So how do we beat every challenge, every circumstance, every situation, every giant, every mountain, our faith? It tells us Romans 8.37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And how do we more than conquer? Our faith. So let's go to Hebrews 11. If we're going to talk about faith, we might as well go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Notice what it says here. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the title deed of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. So faith gives what you hope for substance and is a title deed of what you cannot see. Faith gives you a good report. And as we go through the scripture, even before chapter 10 says, 
you need, let's back up a little bit. Let's go to chapter 10 for a second. Hebrews 10. Back up to 32. But a call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions or pressure brought by circumstances. Partly while you're made a gaze of stock, by, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence. This word confidence is bold outspokenness. Don't throw it away. Why? Because it has great recompense of reward. That phrase, recompense of reward, means payday. It also talks about restoration. It's the same word that would describe if you went on a business trip and you spent your own money on behalf of the business. When you got back, they repaid you for what you spent. This word also, as I said, means payday. For you have need of patience, the Christian cuss word. Because it's not just patient. I'm being patient, Jesus. I don't like it very much, but I'm being patient. It's cheerful endurance. It's enduring and still keeping a smile on your face. It's enduring and still having joy. For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just, say, I'm the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition or destruction, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. We are not those who quit. We are not those who go back. We're those who press on. Then it gets to what we saw in chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. And then, then it begins to list what some people call the faith hall of fame. People who would overcome by faith. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Moses' parents, Samuel, David, Jephthah, Samson, the three Hebrew boys in the fire. He begins to list these overcomers of faith, those who had their own circumstances, those who had their own trials, those who had their own situations, their own pressures, but they beat it by faith. Then you get to chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. This word cloud is so interesting because it also describes a huge number of people, a large, innumerable amount of people. And it says we are surrounded. This is what we're compassionate. So we're surrounded by them. But notice how he keeps describing it. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which also easily beset us. For sake of time, we're going past that because not every weight is a sin. There's some stuff you ain't supposed to be doing. And sin which so easily beset us, which means that sometimes there are sins that are more struggles for you than they are for others. So that means don't judge somebody else because they sin differently than you did. Or they struggle with something you don't struggle with. Sin is sin. You repent of it and move on. You don't make excuse for it because it's your own personal pet sin or personal struggle. 
And then you don't identify with your sin, you identify with the righteousness. Let us run with patience. There we go again, patience. The race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher or the developer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising or thinking little of the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, that you be wearied and faint in your minds. So we see what it told us in chapter 10. We get to chapter 11 and see all these great stories of those who overcame by faith. You get to chapter 12 and the writer says we are surrounded by them. We are surrounded by their testimonies. And because we're surrounded by them, let us run our own race. What is that painting the picture of? A track meet. Imagine being at a track meet or an Olympic track meet with a stadium full of people cheering. You know, you talk to any athlete and they talk about how the home field advantage actually plays a part because their people are cheering them on, right? Even if it's a tough game, there's a difference when their people are cheering them on. Come on, you've even seen interviews with these big NFL guys, you know, they're these big guys, and when you get out the field, they're looking for the mama in the stands. They're looking for that person to cheer them on. The writer's using the same example, talking about us running a race, that we're surrounded by heroes and conquerors of faith who are cheering us on. You can imagine a full stadium or arena of cheers cheering someone on. But what about the cheers of every single believer who's ever lived? We think about right now on earth, there's two to three billion Christians. Just them cheering you on is a lot. But think about every person who's believed and followed God for all of history. Every single one overcame something by faith. Every single one of them is in heaven cheering you on. You have way more people cheering you on than you've ever imagined. You might think, oh, nobody's on my side. There are billions of people cheering you on right now. Billions of people cheering you on to walk by faith. Billions of people cheering you on to overcome every situation and every trial and every circumstance. Billions of people are cheering you on right now. And that great cloud of witnesses. You might say, Pastor, you don't know the giant I'm facing today. I may not know it, but David and Joshua and Caleb said you can do it. He said, Pastor, you don't know the Red Sea before me, but Moses said you can part it. You might say, but it's impossible. If I take this move, there's no way I can go forward. Esther said you can do it. He said, Pastor, they said I'm too old. Abraham and Sarah said you ain't. Oh, pastor, they said I'm too young. Samuel said you're not. There are billions of people cheering you on. Run your race. Keep going. Keep pushing. Keep pressing. Don't give up. Jesus said it this way in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, you have pressure. But be of good cheer. 
I have overcome the world. When Jesus beat the world, he gave you his victory. So that means if Jesus did it, you can do it. That phrase, be of good cheer, yes means be of good cheer, but also means be of good courage. It's translated in the Gospels to be of good comfort. It is a call to courage and boldness. It is a call to courage and boldness. Just like God told Joshua in Joshua 1, be courageous, be strong, be bold. In order to do what God has called you to do in these days, you have to be bold. You have to be strong. You have to be courageous in a society ransacked by fear. You have to choose boldness. You have to choose strength. You have to choose to be courageous. And all that is true if you're going to run your race. And they're cheering you on, be bold, be strong, be courageous. But all that to say, don't focus on being bold. I don't want you to focus on being bold. Because sometimes if you focus on being bold, you end up reckless. You focus on being bold, you get ahead of God's timing for your life. Focus on being bold, you just do something to do it and you wind up in a mess. Don't focus on being bold, focus on being filled. Don't focus on being bold, focus on being filled. Ephesians 5.18 says, be not drunk with wine wearing as excess, but be filled with the Spirit, or be being filled, it says in the Greek. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be being filled or stay filled. Stay filled. Don't focus on being bold. Focus on being filled because when you're filled, the boldness comes. We look at Acts 4, 29 through 31, when they prayed, it says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spoke the word of God with boldness. A byproduct of being filled is boldness. Jesus even told them those days don't even focus what you need to say when you stand before the government. The Holy Ghost will tell you what to say in those times. So more focus on the Holy Ghost than the boldness. Be being filled, which means don't just be filled on Sunday. Be filled every day. There's one baptism in the Holy Ghost, but there's many refillings. You see it through the book of Acts, how they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And then again, they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And again, they were filled with the Holy Ghost. That if you want to be bold in these days, your human boldness is not enough. Your human courage is not enough. It's important, but it's not enough. You're going to need the infilling of the Holy Ghost. You're going to need to stay filled with the Holy Ghost. Someone say, well, I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. Someone asked the pastor and says, well, are you a Holy Ghost-filled church? He says, sometimes. I hope we stay filled more often than not. Because just because you're filled one day does not mean you're filled today. How do we know just because you filled your car one day does not mean it's going to be filled next week? It depends on the driving you do. Think about it this way. If you filled your car one time and you just drove, say, well, my car is filled. I filled it. My car is filled, I filled it. My car is filled, I filled it. My car is filled, I filled it. What is that E? My car is filled, I filled it. What's that light? My car is filled, I filled it. Why is my car slowing down? My car is filled, I filled it. You on the side of the world said, but I filled my car. 
well, maybe you use what you used. So that means I continually need to fill myself. That means it's not just Sunday. You're being filled right now, but some of you need another refilling tonight. You wake up in the morning, need some more. Take breaks during the day. Let me go pray in the Holy Ghost for five minutes before I, ooh, yeah, I need five minutes, Jesus, five minutes, because I'm about to ruin my testimony, five minutes. You have to stay filled. Because there are signs of being filled. It's not just boldness. Speaking to your psalms, self and psalms, hymns and spiritual psalms, making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's a process of being filled, but it's also a byproduct of being filled. And so just pay attention to yourself this week. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not looking at anybody in particular or online. But if you're always whining and complaining, you ain't filled. If the song of your heart is, woe is me and nobody knows and I can't do this, you ain't filled. But what comes to your heart is praising to God and thanksgiving. It's a sign of being filled. If you're always talking to worry, you ain't filled. But a praise to God is overflowing. You're being filled. We can't get so caught up in what goes on in the world that we become afraid just like them. Become full of worry and anxiety just like them. When you have access to all of heaven, be filled and the boldness will come. Be filled and the boldness will come because you need boldness to run your race. You know, one of the things we saw, if you watch on Friday night, the Olympics, that they've been doing this for a while now. It takes a couple years for the Olympic torch to reach the destination of the next city. And there is a person or a group of people that run or jog or walk a part of the way and they hand it off to the next person. And then they hand it off to the next person. Then they hand it off to the next person. And then I saw on Friday night, they hand it off to Naomi Osaka. And she took it on the last part of the journey and put it into the Olympic cauldron to symbol the beginning of the games. You see, one of the reasons all those people in Hebrews 11 and beyond are cheering you on is because they've passed the torch. It's just like in a track race when you pass the baton. Abraham has passed the torch. That's why he's cheering you on. See, this is the same torch that Enoch had, the same torch that Abel and Noah had, the same torch that Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph had, the same torch that Samuel and David had, the same torch that Elijah and Elisha had, the same torch that Esther held, the same torch that Ruth held, the same torch that the apostles held, the same torch that great men and women of God from all the centuries held. And now they're in heaven charity on because they've passed the torch. So they say, be bold. Run your race. Don't drop the torch. Don't drop the baton. Keep running. Keep going. Don't quit now. You have to run your leg of this journey. And who knows, this may be the last leg. And if this is the last leg, we cannot afford to drop the torch. Think about it this way. If this is the last leg, you do not put the last leg of the journey in the hands of the slowest runner. 
on the last leg, you put the person to run who can make up for lost time. In the last leg of the journey, you put the one in who can, oh man, if a few people back messed up, you can make up for lost time. You can redeem the time. Jesus is coming soon. Pick up your torch. It's time to fulfill our assignments. It's time to fulfill our purpose. It's time to fulfill our destiny. We have a generation to win. We have an awakening to ignite. We have people we must bring to Jesus. What God has called you to do is important. No matter the career, no matter where it is, no matter if anyone else thinks it's important, if the Holy Ghost has assigned you to it, it's important. Don't drop the torch. Pick it up and run. Run with boldness. Run with courage. Run with strength. Run with joy because it is your time now and all of heaven is cheering you on. Stand to your feet. All of heaven is cheering you on. So be bold. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't quit now. You're not a quitter. You're an overcomer. You're not a loser. You are a champion. It's not over until you win. So don't give up. Whatever you're facing, don't stop. Whatever giant that's intimidating you, don't listen. Too many people have gone before you and have won for you to consider what you're facing too strong for you. I'm sure Noah building the ark said this is a lot. I'm sure Abraham and Sarah said this is a lot. I'm sure Moses said this is a lot. I'm sure Esther said this is a lot. I'm sure Daniel said this is a lot. But they all overcame by faith. And so can you. You can overcome your own personal struggles, your own personal setbacks. You can overcome things that have held your family back for generations. You can overcome things in society that are positioned to hold you back. And you can overcome everything hell stands your way. Why? You are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that phrase is not because the gates of hell are moving. It's because the church is moving. And hell cannot hold you back. It says death in the scripture, that word meant also hell in the grave, could not hold Jesus. If it could not hold him, it can't hold you. Too many believers say, I'm being held back by the enemy. And maybe I submit to you, you're not being held back by the enemy, but maybe you're holding on to the enemy. Hold it on to old ways of thinkings. Hold it on to the lies he's told you. Hold it on to the deception. I'm telling you, be like Paul on the island who shook off the snake. You need to shake off the things that have been holding you back. You need to set aside the weight that so easily besets you. You need to set aside that sin that so easily besets you. 
and run with patient endurance what God has for you.